Welcome to the ADS Theat, hosted by me, Mitch Owens, AD's Decorative Arts Editor. At the end of the 19th century and well into the 20th, the most important firm helping the 1% find their aesthetic footing was Duveen Brothers, an international art and antiques advisory. From modest beginnings, it swiftly grew to become crucial to the formation of not only major private collections, but also an influence on public taste, as those treasures were eventually donated to museums. Here today to talk about Duveen Brothers and its impact on the development of American taste are Charlotte Vignon, Curator of Decorative Arts for the Frick Collection and the author of Duveen Brothers and the Market for Decorative Arts, 1880-1940, published this year by Giles. She's joined by another eminent art and design scholar, the Manhattan dealer and historian, R. Louis Bofferding. Enjoy the show. So Charlotte, could you put Duveen Brothers and the family in historical context and a geographical context? Where did they come from and how did they get to be as prominent as they were? I mean, how, how soon was that leap? So first, there's many, many Duveens. So for the clarity of the story, I actually focus on three Duveen, Joel, Henry, and Joseph. Joseph being the son of Joel, and Joel and Henry being brothers. So the big brother is Joel Duveen, and he started, they are Dutch of mm -hmm. origin, but uh, he moved pretty quickly in Great Britain, in Hull, and uh, not now, yet- why Hull? I would think London. Mm -hmm. I would think anywhere but Hull. Because he was in the import-export uh, business, and not at all in the art market. And for Dutch men from Jewish uh, origin, it was a place to go. There were already family members, cousins, people from the same town going there. So f from there, for th him at a young age, that was a place where he can imagine to do some business and be successful, not art yet. And he became very successful as a businessman. And somehow he met Bennett, a man, that he decided that they will maybe start doing some art import and not only some other kind of merchandise. And, uh, and this is in the 1860s. 60s. So it's pretty early. And they started with Dutch pot, ceramics, and later Chinese porcelain, and a little bit of furniture, Dutch furniture, bringing that into Great Britain, where these objects were um, in demand. Mm -hmm. So pretty low, not, not big market, not a lot of big prices, but he learned how to do business. And I think he was a very, very keen businessman. He understood anticipation of what people wanted, how he can sell them, how he can import also at low cost. He started by doing things, buying in quantity like not only one piece at a time, but you buy a collection, you bring things over, you try to sell. So I think he was, he, he learned the, the job of a good uh, businessman. Where did, where did the firm sit at that time between, say, average antiques dealer 
and a more of a decorative arts specialty. I think here we are really with a bric-a-brac dealer, mm-hmm. really selling, buying, whatever, to definitely not a, a British client, a uh, London clientele, like provincial, uh, whoever wanted to have all nice little pots, and they will mm. go a piece of old furniture, a tall clocks, and it, it's very, it's, it's very um, low, relatively so a casual, casual antique dealings, okay. bric-a-brac. But Duvin was an ambitious man, a good, good businessman, and he wanted bigger. And bigger is London, and it was London, where really London at the time was one of the capital of the art market. So at one point he moved there. And and there he starts seeing things bigger <coughs> and having access to bigger collectors, better objects, and his younger brother also start to come in the in the picture, Henry. And again, as a good businessman, he said, "Okay, if I'm moving to London, my brother should go further." And further at the time was America. So this is almost like. The idea of the Rothschilds and banking. Absolutely. We're going to put you here in London and you're Mm -hmm. going to go to New York and someone else is going to go to Paris. Absolutely. It's exactly the same phenomenon of uh, Jewish banking families and our dealers too. In uh, The Divines were not the only one. Uh, It was a pattern to establish branches in different places, different locations in Europe. And in the case of the Duvin, and that is where I think uh, Joel Duvin was very avant-garde and even more ambitious than other dealers, was to think about America. So when did the New York office open? This is actually tricky. We don't know exactly when. Uh, Henry arrived in the 1880s, mm-hmm. early in the, He arrived in Boston, again, because of family uh, connection. And it's only in Boston he it thought it was not very interesting, and he moved very quickly to New York, and there he really realized that that was the place where the business can uh, flourish, and there were a huge future in in New York. And those are, Louis, that was a time where these huge fortunes were coming to a head in New York. I mean, not that the money wasn't around, (coughs) but suddenly the money, the people who had made the fortune want to give themselves really important settings. Mm-hmm. So it's like a perfect con- confluence. Well, I think it's interesting to think of Devine in the context, and really what he comes out of is the Gilded Age, which has to do with the fact that, I mean, it's in this country, I don't know what the English equivalent is, if there is one, but the same phenomenon happened, which is that the Industrial Revolution happening in the mid-18th century, and um, you have a slow, gradual transference of power and wealth from the landed gentry to the newly made industrial fortunes. It's interesting that the Devine family, formerly based in the Netherlands, set up in London and in New York, because of course, that's where the Industrial Revolution really first took place, took root rather in the West, much more so than in France or in Italy um, or in Eastern Europe, so that they could establish these, their kind of trading firm and cater to not the landed gentry who already had their fine objects and their fine homes, but the people who were making fortunes that were many times the size of the fortunes of the landed gentry and overnight needed to furnish them. And, and then there's a competition between <clears throat> these fortunes, not not only needing to furnish these houses. It's all about one-upmanship. Exactly. One yes, as it is today, too, I think, you know, in New York in, in 2019. And then also what I find very interesting is there's a very old-fashioned phrase, which we really don't hear any longer, which is your betters. 
Mm. And I think that's something that we don't recognize today, whether it exists or not. But that was something which I think was deemed to be absolutely the case when you're talking about the Gilded Age, which is, say, post-Civil uh, War period up until certainly well into the 20th century. So that when you make all of this money and you're building your townhouses and your country houses, which no longer need to be the country houses are not about farming any longer. They're just about big grand piles where you have weekend guests. And they're not even about ancestral houses. They're about no. disposability. I mean, it's it's simply the establishment of an amazing architectural monument and then 10 years later moving farther uptown. Yeah, It doesn't matter what it costs. So I find that to be really interesting, but yet the... Duveen clients in America at that time and, and certainly up through a certain period through the 20th century are trying to, 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 to ape ancestral piles in urban settings. And yet, interestingly, the Americans are not trying to ape their betters here, which is, say, the Peabodies. They are leapfrogging across the Atlantic Ocean, and they are looking to see how the titled aristocracy lives in France and in England. And in the end, I think their best role models were actually the Rothschilds, who, would near, who had just recently acquired their titles, being given to them by Napoleon III and in England, Queen Victoria, I guess, I'm not quite sure. And looking at the way that they are decorating their townhouses and their country estates like Wadston Manor and Ferrier. And that, I think, leads us to someone I'm, whom I'm sure you're interested in, Charlotte, and I know I have become increasingly so in, in recent years, is the French um, artist and decorator Eugène Lamy, mm. who oh, was, was such great. a fascinating figure and still, I think, really not all that well known or understood, but he was... He was an artist who managed to work for a regime, to a regime in France, even though they were being toppled by their successors, and would go in and do these ravishing watercolors and paintings of the, whether it is the court festivities at the Tuileries or the Rothschild country entertainments, and then also was decorating their houses. And there I find something very interesting. Um, which is that in this kind of gilded age period, regardless of which continent we're talking about, but operating, I think, still under the same forces, that there, in terms of taste, seems to branch off into two different directions. And one is a kind of historicist point of view, which I find more in Devine, where you're creating essentially period rooms. And so there, the dining room is going to be vaguely, if not exactly, Louis XV, and the drawing room is going to be vaguely, if not exactly, Adam. And then you have kind of another branch which seems to be contemporaneous, which is Stanford White, mm. which is this kind of aestheticism and piling into rooms treasures that have nothing to do with each other, but putting them together in a very um, in a startling and beautiful way. Yeah, I think you're totally right. But there is also the modernist, and mm -hmm. and I think what is um, Tiffany and Co. And I think mm -hmm. it's even more mm -hmm. interesting because all of these movements at the time use old objects right. in one way or another. Right. So that's why for uh, dealers like uh, like the Duvines, it was such so interesting because they can actually have 
they had many different kind of clients. They were just selling all objects that will uh, take different shape. Mm-hmm. And for the modernists, I'm just thinking about the Chinese porcelain. He had, he sold, they sold the Duvins, many, many Chinese porcelain that will end up in the most Stanford Wright, but mm-hmm. also Tiffany interior, yeah, which right. went kind of the avant-garde at the time. So, and as you said, also in a more uh, traditional period room um, looking at uh, European uh, old interiors. But it strikes me that Devine, for example, was not putting together, I mean, probably early on when they were more bric-a-brac dealers, but even perhaps in the early days in London, I don't know that they were selling more individual pieces. Um, I, I think the interior decoration kind of entered into it at a latter period. But whereas Stanford White is a kind of eclecticism within the same room, same room, so that the, you know, there'll be doorways from Italian Renaissance palaces, but the furniture inside will be um, contemporary French painting, um, academic painting, perhaps next to an old master portrait by Van Dyck, with furniture that's both Louis the Fifteenth and Renaissance and Elizabethan, whereas Devine seemed to be, and that's very Stanford Whitey, whereas Devine seemed, in his interiors, seemed to be quite consistent and promoting a particular look in a room, if not even a particular look throughout a house. Yeah, absolutely. It was more um, classic, in a way, and less, mm-hmm. more coherent, more, less, I mean, Stanford White was an amazing artist and a visionary mm-hmm. in terms of, as an architect and as an interior decorator, the Duvins were dealers more mm-hmm. and yes of course also interior decorator but they seem almost more functioning according to rules than Stanford White was as Absolutely. an architect that the decorator is actually and the antique dealer whom you would think would be just trying to sell a bill of goods in point of fact is putting together more consistent interiors I wouldn't say better but more consistent interiors than the architect I know in reading about one of the most fascinating aspects of your book Charlotte to me is the correspondence between Mrs. Stotesbury of White Marsh Hall in Pennsylvania, this magnificent piece of Versailles dropped into the middle of the countryside, and Duveen about the furnishing of this Trumbauer house. But it's when you really see, for me, the synthesis between Duveen's decorating eye and the client's desire to have something proper, to have something not Mm avant-garde, but just very glamorous and very regal, but also to see the relationship between the client and the decorator and dealer comes across in such an incredibly charming fashion. But these, now we are much later. We are in the 1920s, which I think it's a different period than the 1880s, uh, 1890s and 1900, where it was more a period of uh, creation with Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. historicisms, modernism starting up, and the period room, and Stanford Wright. And in the 1920s, it's already more um, defined classicisms in in a modern vocabulary or in a revival, Mm -hmm. but it's still very modern. I mean, the interior that Duvin did 
are not that different from the article one. I right. mean, you are dealing with a classicist mm -hmm. um, uh, vocabulary. But the relationship, it's also very interesting. It's like a relationship that you always have with a decorator, with a client, and they are always very, very different because at the end, it's a very personal relationship. Mm. And I think when you talk about Eva Stotsbury and Joseph Duveen, they had a unique relationship, and it was clear that Eva Stotsbury wanted to uh, create in the 20s um, imagine it's just before you know the the Great Depression right. and she's really trying to bring this last moment of glory creating this little Versailles outside Philadelphia and she lived in a dream like a little bit um, uh, Dodge will do mm. in Detroit there were mm. these women somewhere in America that wanted to create uh, an utopia and and Duvin was there to try to help them to create these uh, these these interiors and these houses by the early 1900s what were people coming to Duveen for, and why did they go there as opposed to another dealer? I mean, what was the skill that Duveen Brothers offered that somebody else didn't? In 1900? Yeah, let's say 1910. Yeah, it's, I think they have the, <clears throat> the biggest and the greatest inventory of objects in terms of quality and in terms of diversity too. Mm -hmm. Because by that point, uh, they were the greatest dealer in Asian porcelain, they were the greatest dealer, you know, Chinese porcelain, I should say. They were the greatest dealer in French furniture, tapestries, and they started to be extremely important as painting dealers, mm -hmm. old master, mm -hmm. sculpture. They were so big by that moment that they were basically buying the greatest collection available uh, in Europe on the market. So it's entire collection of European great collectors and aristocrats and entire residents. They were buying everything and they can bring everything to... Um, Empty, rich Americans' it, rooms. Exactly. Because <laughs> when we talk earlier about clients for a dealer, you have two clients. You have the one you're selling, but you're also the one you're buying from. And they bought a lot at auctions, but they also bought a lot directly at... Um, from individual right so um, and and the people who were selling at the time were European aristocracy so there were also to come back to an early conversation it was this idea of the aristocracy in Europe was really in decline mm -hmm. and there is enormous uh, fragility of uh, financial fra fragilities and that pushed them to sell content of their entire residence, townhouse in London, New York, uh, London, Paris, or, or residences uh, in, in countryside. So it was because of this movement that they could acquire the contents of these, uh, these houses and able to sell them in, in, in America. At which point Duvain really has, by that point, developed through the power of the firm, mm -hmm. I suppose, and also the desire of the caliber of clients, they've created what is a truly American mm -hmm. taste, this sort of, uh, to go back to that moment of eclecticism, that desire to have rooms full of beautiful things. But let's go back to that kind of caliber of the firm, which I find very interesting, which is your original question about you know, why Devine? And of course, they did have this fleet of employees. And what's interesting about, for example, the 1910s, if not the 19 aughts, is the entry into the field of decorating, because Devine is both a dealer and he is also a decorator, the entry of 
of specifically Elsie DeWolf in the aughts and the teens, where, which is very much the modern, which is, say, the contemporary idea of a decorator today, who just kind of shoots from the hip. They come in with their, you know, their sense of style and pronounce things to be chic and divine and to die for, and to be buying all of these, buying or commissioning these luxury objects and creating these interiors. Whereas Devine had, you know, an immense staff. He had work rooms. He had professional decorators like Carleon and um, Charles Allum and Alavoine to actually fabricate the boiserie, the panelings for the rooms and the parquet floors and to install 18th century ceilings within the ceilings and all of that. Elsie DeWolf could of course, also call on these firms, and I'm sure she went shopping there, but it was a very different sort of thing, and it wasn't quite as professional. I mean, the Duvin, the Duvin became decorator because they needed to sell their inventories, the mm -hmm. stock. Uh, it's not because they wanted to be decorator to be decorator. They, they just saw an opening. Yeah, they saw an, oppor an opportunity, and again, it go back to the fact that they were back to Joel Duvin and Henry, and, and especially Joseph, the Lord of Millerbank, they were extremely good businessmen. And if you sell to a client one clog, one piece of furniture, one vase or a painting, it's, it's good, but you're doing individual sales. And the Duvin said, we're going to do your room. You're going to do the, your, your interiors, and we're going mm -hmm. to sell hundreds of objects at once. And we have the inventory that's deep enough and wide enough for this to happen. And this is also interesting because it goes back to a, a European sense of business as opposed to an American sense of business, which is that there is a family profession and it goes from generation to generation. So in your book, you cover what, at least three generations of the Duveen family. Elsie DeWolf came out of nowhere and she became a decorator and she had no offspring. And if you look at Siri Mom or any of these other early 20th century decorators who had become so famous, they all had, you know, their offices and people who worked for them, secretary, etc. And many of them, like Elsie DeWolf and Siri Mom, also did have shops. And they were stocking the shops and trying to sell individual things and hoping to get, you know, the big client so that they could do their rooms. But I think it is interesting to posit these two different ways of doing business in America where everything starts from the beginning with every with every generation, if not several times within one person's career. No, I think you're absolutely <clears throat> right. It's 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 very true. And and in the case of the Duvins, again, for simplicity I focus in on the three, but you're right, there were the cousins and and the great uncle and so the entire family was part of the business and it was a big family. And uh, so they can all help each other mm -hmm. and and be part of this big adventure. So I think that the family, the trust, and also the energy and the number of people working for the firm was, was, was very important. Who was the Duveen that stood out most for you in your research for the book, the one who really captivated? 
I, there are, the three are great because I love I love Joel because he started it. I mean, you need to to have something for the man who just left, you know, the Netherlands and went back to Hull and London and had the vision to send his younger brother to 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 New York. I love Henry because I think Henry was a great personality. He was the American here and he got to know everyone. And I think it was a very very fun um, character. And and who cannot love Joseph Duvine? I mean, he was just the greatest of the greatest. Mm -hmm. So I think they are all very different. I all like them for different reasons, and they were all very charismatic and powerful um, individuals. And they all have their talents. Some clients like one or the other. For example, J.P. Morgan will not deal with Joseph Duvine. Uh, it was too uh, too much energy, too much not maybe. Um, also a question of generation, too young for him. And so uh, GP Morgan will only deal with Henry. So every big client of the firm mm -hmm. will have uh, one of the specific DV to I deal with. I think this is the moment to bring up charisma and power. Absolutely. And... I have to say that in reading all the books I've read about the Duveens, the second generation seemed to have kind of the real characters, really interesting in a way that perhaps the father was not. The father, I think, was brilliant and setting this whole thing up in this very shrewd way, this international firm. Second generation, though, clearly had a pull with these, you know, very rich people who were somewhat in their thrall as overstating it, but were to a degree, we're being manipulated mm -hmm. by the Devines, which is very interesting. So that... Willingly. Willingly. Oh, yes. And so that, to me, implies charisma. Yet I have to say, in kind of reading, although, of course, telegrams, how charismatic can a telegram be? But in reading letters and things, too, I see there's a cleverness there. But I don't quite see that charisma that one associates with the 21st century decorator, say, a per Peter Marino kind of figure, who has his whole, his way of dressing, which, you know, certainly breaks all molds, and way of speaking to clients and peppers his conversation with four-letter words and all of that. So, you know, a larger-than-life personality. But, and also, someone like Peter Marino has the power to make, he's, he's operating on the same level, living basically as well as his clients. Devine, the Devine brothers were somewhat that way, too, I don't necessarily see in my readings, however, maybe you, how, where the charisma comes in, or was it more power than charisma? The fact that they, if they weren't going to sell you that wheat of tapestries or that Van Dyke portrait for an, an unbelievable amount of money, they had someone else who would buy it. Could you maybe speak to that power charisma factor? I think you're right <clears throat> by saying that Joel Duvine and Henry so the first generation brothers mm -hmm. um, were brilliant and very good, uh, very, very good businessmen. And uh, they put together this, the foundation of something that was extremely solid. And there were also, I think we should insist on that, they were bringing in, in New York or in America things that were not available here. So at that time, collectors, American collectors, or wealthy American who wanted to buy antiques or a good painting, they went to Europe. They had to go to Europe to find it. There were no antique dealers, really, mm -hmm. that were selling this material here in the, in the United States. So for them, they were, you know, suddenly, they were at one point the only one. They had a monopoly 
for several years of being the first really European dealers established in New York to provide this amazing work of art to this American clientele who are just dying to have it. So they, they create <coughs> a monopoly. And I think to create a monopoly, you really need to be quite brilliant mm -hmm. businessmen. And, and that is definitely the credit of, of Joel and Henry, and a lot of artwork, a lot of manipulation. And the charisma is definitely Joseph Duvin, who, like uh, the son of Joel, was this uh, man really bigger than life, I think, as a, as mm -hmm. a, as a huge personality. Mm -hmm. uh, so very suave. Very suave. Was he charming, would you say? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes, I think he was over charming mm -hmm. for men's and women's, actually. Mm -hmm. I mean, some people like J.P. Morgan will not be fooled by Joseph right. Devine, but everybody from, you know, Evan Henry Clay Frick, Huntington, and, and a lot of women. He had a lot of women's clients. And, and at that, you know, at that period of time, men's make money mm -hmm. and the women spend. Mm -hmm. So, so he, he was like a courtier advisor. Absolutely. And almost increasingly now, it seems like early on, it seems more men and later on, it seems more women. Yeah. He had very important, <coughs> uh, Arabella Huntington was very early. She was in the 1880s, Arabella. Uh, but yeah, uh, many, many women in the, the, in the 20s, mm -hmm. and he decorated uh, all of their residences, mm -hmm. and not only one, you know, the New York townhouse or apartments and the Newport's house or outside houses elsewhere. And it, it's just, it, he was uh, extremely charming. He was fun. He was knowledgeable. He was quick. He was definitely extremely devoted to his clients. He will do whatever for them. He definitely, at that point, had the same lifestyle than them. So they will... Was that ever a drawback for him to live as well as his clients? He was born like that, which the earlier generation mm -hmm. was not. So uh, Joseph Duvin was well-educated. He spoke several languages. I think he allows uh, a familiarity and a, maybe a, 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 he was at ease mm -hmm. uh, with his clients that maybe Henry and Joel were not at the time. Mm -hmm. I think Henry always had, which I read, a very, very thick accent. Mm -hmm. So he was, and Joel too, when I don't think Joseph had, he was completely comfortable in this American wealthy or elite so mm -hmm. elite Europe uh, society, not actually only in New York or in America, but also in in in, in, now, in Britain that's and That's of in interest France. too, of course, because he was Jewish. I was just going to bring that up, wondering if that in any way did it bother anyone or cause any concern with his clientele because he's because he's it doesn't dealing, seem to really it doesn't seem to at all. <clears throat> he has both Jewish as well as Catholic and Protestant clients. Yeah, I don't think uh, I, I don't think he, he created any problem. There is very few notion or mention of of um, of issues of religion. Um, Was he observant? Yeah. And during That's the interesting. during the beginning of the in the thirties, he tried as much as possible to help Jewish uh, family in Germany. Hmm. And he would buy at the beginning of the Third Reich uh, when Jewish 
people start to feel, especially predominant um, families in Europe, starting to feel that something very, very bad was going to happen. He tried to to, to purchase and acquire mm-hmm. some of the collection to bring the collection here to give them some cash. So there is this, this the 30s is an interesting period where we see that he is really helping, is conscious of, of, of what's happening and, and who he is and, and where he comes from. And in the 30s, they're not really decorating so much anymore, are they? Oh, they do. Are they? And at Thompson Dodge, Rose Palace, and all of that. It's it's the 30s, the apartment. Is that the 30s? I was thinking that was more 1930s. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. And I know we're we're talking about clients like like Dodge and Morgan and Frick and Huntington and Altman and all sorts of amazing plutocrats of the late 19th, early, early to mid 20th century. But what has always fascinated me about Duveen is how many stellar objects went mm. through that firm to this 1% of clients and now are in museums all over the country, if not mm. all over the world. Within the provenance, there's Duveen Brothers, mm. which certainly says something about the power and the excellence of the firm getting these treasures into one may argue, deserving hands, mm-hmm. and now they're on public view. So that there is two interesting points you're touching here. One is the quality of the fir- the object. We mentioned that before. It's true that they, because at one point they were really able to buy, acquire the best object available. Mm-hmm. They were the most powerful dealers, so they acquired a collection on block, as I mentioned earlier. But also uh, at auction, they were the always buying at top top price. Uh, it's a time when all of the um, auction prices are mentioned in in public, I mean, in newspaper. Mm-hmm. People talk about that, and they wanted to be known as the dealers who were paying the highest price for such and such object. So they were very pri- proud of buying at the top of the market because, as I said, they will sell it for double or three times the prices. Right. So they they raise, really, the value of objects by publicly uh, mentioning the acquisition price and making it sure that everybody knew the, the acquisition price uh, and so they can sell it at, at a higher price. So that is the quality of, of the, um, the stock. I mean, it was just like so, so high because they just bought everything good. Mm. And at the time, there were a lot of great stuff. What's but interesting about that, sorry to interrupt, but it's this whole idea of market share, which I think we find today with Sotheby's and Christie's, where they are so anxious to get the top quality lots, even if they have to kind of give away the store in order to be able to get them by with their, the guarantees and not actually making any money on it, which is exactly what the Devines did too, because sometimes when they bought in your book, they would buy things for huge prices and they would sell, like the Fragonar Progress of Love, selling it to Frick for cost. Yeah, because that they will try to sell more objects and get the price back. But for the idea of what also, what is interesting, because the period of time is completely different. I mean. Everybody, because they knew that they were buying things at top price, mm. a lot of people went to them asking them to sell, like all of the Jewish uh, collect, uh, collectors that I mentioned in the mm-hmm. 30s. But at every period of time, and I don't think it's happened that often. I mean, I know a lot of friends, dealers, there is not a lot of 
time when you have someone who say, you know, I would like to sell my Vermeer, or I would like to say my uh, Velasquez or my table that come from Marie Antoinette's room. Mm-hmm. It doesn't happen today. When at the time, they every week, every day almost, they receive a letter saying, I have that and that, can you buy it? And they would buy it. So they really manage, because they, they were known internationally of being able to buy so many great things that that's why their inventory was so good and so mm-hmm. unique. And the same thing when uh, in the, <coughs> still in the 30s when the Soviet wanted to sell um, the, the collection of the, the, the Russian aristocracy, they went to the Wien. And they said because they knew that they will have the top dollars to, to be able to mm-hmm. acquire this. So... And Duveen said yes because they knew Marjorie Merriweather Post was waiting <laughs> well, outside had. the door. Exactly. And they had, so it's very important to always consider when you work with a dealer that there is where you find the objects and how much you are willing to, to buy and to pay for them and also having the clients where you're going to sell and them. Didn't your, and they had your both. your book, I remember with Frick, and correct me if I'm wrong, there was that moment of Duveen selling the progress of love to Frick at cost, mm-hmm. but the reasoning was he'll come back to us for other things because well, it's so beautiful he won't be able to live without it. And yeah. also, as a dealer, I can say that you know there's such a thing as amortizing your costs. Mm-hmm. So you sell the progress of love for what you paid for it, and I'm sure he probably wiped the sweat from his brow when he did that because it was a huge amount of money, and he knew that it wasn't an easy thing to sell. But because he was also decorating for Frick, he could then bring in the Gutier fireplace and the end tables by Carlin and all these other things where the markup, because these were not famous people. It wasn't published on the front page of the New York Times how much he had paid for those things because he had bought them from Darkened Chateau in France and whatever. There he could make his markup. So he made money sometimes with other objects that he would sell. But in the case of the Fragonite, it was definitely a way to charm Freck and to establish trust. And I think with what you, you, when you're dealing with a decorator or with a dealer and a client is this notion of trust. Uh, You need to be able to to trust one each other. And the Duvins, with their different personality, managed to do that with their client. And for Frick, uh, that was clear that at one point, uh, Frick had other dealers, other decorators involved mm-hmm. in the house, another architect. And Duvin needed to make a move. Joseph Duvin needed to make a move towards Frick saying, I'm, I'm going to help you. We're going to do that together. You need that piece. I know that you need that. You want it take it at cost. And I will after, you know, you will trust me that I understand your taste, I understand what you need. And and it's what happened. And he sold after that hundreds of objects at millions of dollars. So the story of the Fragonard panels, I mean, at the end, Mm -hmm. even if he didn't make any money out of that sale, was completely recouped with other sales. Now, the firm lasted until when? Uh, <coughs> Lord Duvian of Milbank died in 39. He died in 39, and after it's Edouard uh, Fowles who took over up to the 60s, and at one point, Norton Simon actually mm-hmm. purchased the stock and the townhouse and, and everything. 
they sold most of everything at one point at auction. Sotheby's, uh, 1971, I think, sold the remain of the stock of the Duvines. The archives were um, given to the Met. Now they are the Getty. The house kind of fell apart at one mm. point. And it, go back to what we said, it's the personality was very important. Mm-hmm. And it was there were no more Duvines. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Edward Fowle probably wasn't an electrifying no. personality. Mm-hmm. No. So what have we learned or what has continued forward from the Duveen experience in America? Do we, do we still feel that uh, necessity for charisma and trust and excellence in dealers now? I mean, do we look back on Duveen or have we lost in any way what Duveen brought to America for almost 100 years? Well, I think, you know, as as is often being said on the front page of the New York Times, we're living in another gilded age. And I think indeed we are, where we're talking about the top 1% controlling, you know, the majority of, of assets, of um, business profits in this country, which I think was very much the case in the late 19th century and in the early 20th century as well. I think what's different now is that Everything is much more transactional, whether you're talking about interior design or whether you're talking about collecting fine art and the decorative arts, which is that people kind of buy individual things. And I think they are, with the internet, people can get all the information from their computers. Auction houses are no longer geared towards the professional class of, of decorators and dealers. They're geared towards the retail buyer. That happened some decades ago under Peter Wilson, the transition, but now it, I would say it is complete. So I think that you know what's happened with the auction houses and what's happened with the internet has created a completely different situation. What is the same is that we have, yes, a lot of money concentrated at the top and the people at the top all want the same thing. The other thing which I think is the same, which is probably, Well, no, I think it's true probably in Europe in the same way that it is in in America now, too, which is that in terms of looking at your betters, for much of the 20th century, you're looking to the people who are perhaps more well-born than you, better educated than you were. And today, one doesn't really do that any longer. And certainly the person, I think, with the fattest checkbook kind of just wins. So... Unfortunately, I think that's had a deleterious effect on the quality of collecting and of decorating because it's, it's like shopping for T-shirts on the Internet. You kind of want what you want. What you tend to want is what you think everyone else wants. And I think you develop more your individual taste through education and you can't blame someone who's made a billion dollars overnight, at the, you know, um, with their internet startup at the age of 23, not moving into the field of collecting and decorating with the degree of sophistication. And in an age when you're no longer looking towards your educational betters for guidance. Charlotte Vignon, Louis Bofferding. Thank you very much for joining me today to talk about Duveen and the development of American taste through one dealer's establishment. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.
The ADS Theat is produced and edited by Diane Dragan and Emma Wurtzman. Music by Circus Marcus. All rights reserved by Condé Nast. To reach us about this episode or any other episodes, find us on social media at ArcDigest or email us at letters at arcdigest.com.